Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of June 4th, 2020. I'm Charles Hain, writer at No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And filmmaker and writer extraordinaire, Kath Tolentino. Hello. We're going to be talking about AMC Entertainment raising $230 million to go on a buying spree. We're going to be talking about how to find new clients and ask for raises from current clients and bosses, because clients and bosses are not that different, although you get to fire a client. And we're going to be talking about a little bit of cool tech news that I actually think is very doc-relevant from Deity. And we're going to be talking about an Ask No Film School that has a little bit to do with like managing software transitions. So I thought was sort of an interesting one to cover. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, our first story this week, AMC Entertainment has sold $230 million in stock in order to go on a buying spree. They're already talking to the landlords of Arclight Cinemas, Pacific Theaters, some of the movie chains. One of the things that happens in a pandemic or a crisis is that some of the small players fall because they don't have enough cash or ability to raise cash to survive. While bigger players that either have the cash or the ability to borrow cash end up scooping them up. And I think that's what we're about to see. We're about to see AMC go on a buying spree of a bunch of little theater chains, regionals, and things like that, that could have individually survived. Like the crazy thing is so, like, it's not like AMC had this money. They went out and raised this money. So Arclight could have also, like, investors could have just invested straight in Arclight instead of investing in AMC to buy Arclight. But there's this belief among certain investment groups that like bigger is better and there will be efficiencies of scale. And like, I guess there might be, I guess AMC might be able to get like cheaper popcorn by buying it bigger volume and they'll have more power in their negotiations with the studios. Here's a line from the, from the article on the wrap about this. Uh, We also have coverage on it on no film school, but The New Deal, uh, the recent market surge has enabled the New Deal since the 8.5 million shares represent a small portion of the current trading volume. That's uh, Wall Street jargon. This transaction underscores the real value of having some authorized share capital available for us to opportunistically capitalize on shareholder value creation possibilities as and when they arise. With our increased liquidity and an increasingly vaccinated population, blah, 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 it's time for AMC to go on the offense. So I think it's sort of like that's part of the the size and scale that affords them the ability to get their hands on this kind of cash quickly to make this kind of deal. That's my reading of that. But it sounds like that's the reasoning why it's AMC, I guess, and not Arclight having the ability to get that kind of Authorized share capital? (laughs) I don't know what that means. No, I feel like I need a glossary. (laughs) I mean, the thing for me is it always goes back to, we have this idea that like there are natural forces that are actually the results of design. And so the way our stock markets are designed to operate is they're designed to favor bigger organizations that think in shorter term increments. And so, like, if we redesigned our stock market, which, like, I don't know how to do, but I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of people with great ideas that favored 
longer term investments that paid out money over time and favored smallness and stability, it would have been easier for smaller companies to find those direct investments. I remember once I met an investor in a coffee shop. It's a long story, but we were like sitting three in a row in a coffee shop and someone else was like telling, like at the table next to us, someone was saying about a need they had. And I owned a company at the time that provided that need. And I like interrupted their conversation to be like, oh, hey, I actually do what you need. You should call me and give my card. And the investor guy was like, that was a really smooth way to do that. And we had a, like a long conversation about like sales and when to interrupt people and stuff. And then I tried to pitch him an idea and he was like, I'm really not interested in anything that's not a core technology that will make billions of dollars. And I was like, yeah, I don't have any ideas like that. And he's like, yeah, of course. But like, you know, um, <laughs> and it was one of those moments where I was like, you know, investors want 10 X returns. Investors want big, you know, all of those things. And so like, it does bum me out that it's like, I really wish that somehow that 200, like that the market, I don't blame any individual player in this, but it would be awesome if our market were designed such that that $230 billion could just be separately given to each of the individual little movie theater chains to keep doing what they are doing, as opposed to having to be given to one entity that'll then go up by all the others. And like, that's a bummer. Can I, give, not, I, I just I realized with amazing- AMC in particular. Yeah, yeah. No, I have. You make really good point. I have an amazing, I think, I'm not going to, I'm going to hype myself before I say it, but I think I have a really good corollary to industry, creative experience in the filmmaking industry, which is that when you say you're a writer or a director and you have a bunch of properties you're working on, like ideas, and you take a bunch to your manager and agent and they start trying to sell them, they will always take the ideas they think are the most profitable to the biggest companies because they're not that interested in small gains because they yep. get a small piece. They are interested the first thing they want to they want to hunt the biggest game first because they're only going to get a certain amount like the hyenas that they are. Just kidding. Because you're doing the hunting, right? They're just getting a percent. I'm just kidding. They, they're, they're whatever you hunt, you hunt and kill with your, you know, creative with your manager agent. The manager agent is getting ten percent, fifteen percent, so or whatever. So that I think the correlation is that AMC is for the investor. It's the biggest bet. It's the biggest buy. You're going to get the biggest chunk. Your your tiny chunk is going to be a bigger chunk, whereas. If it's small investors, then the chunk is going to be smaller because the total is smaller. So I think that that's why we see this across all things in business where, you know, I, I am surprised, honestly, that we haven't seen in all this an Amazon decide to buy an AMC yet. Or I mean, frankly, a, not just but, little. But that was the other thing that was interesting in this is like, only $230 million? Like, there's movies that cost $230 million. Like, this is too small potatoes for Amazon to care about. Like, Amazon's only ever bought two or three Good things point. ever, and they're all in the billions of dollars range. And, like, this is like... Yeah, why, so why doesn't Apple... Let's, let's like, I wonder aloud, why doesn't Apple just say, like, hey, you know what? Let's buy all the movie theaters. <laughs> like, everywhere. Like, why not? Right now would be the perfect time to just be like, we own movie theaters. Like if you see a movie theater, you're seeing it in an Apple theater. I have a theory because I want to hear it. I'm curious. Is it just because I mean, it's a dying model? 
No, because I, that's what I think. Oh no, I don't think. I think that anybody. I don't think it's a dying model. I think my grandchildren will still see movies in theaters. It feels uh, like it's coming. There might only be like a hundred people left on Earth, but I think they'll still <laughs> fire up the movie theater on Friday nights. No, I mean <laughs> Apple's not buying movie theaters because aesthetically they're not interested in them. If every movie theater had been built in the last ten years and all had glass stairways. I would totally buy them. <laughs> the vast majority of them. They're so the, ugly. Well, <laughs> if they all look like spaceships. Yeah. The the ugliest ones are the most revenue beneficial. The beautiful ones are still not Apple beautiful, right? Like the Egyptian, the, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. all those are still like not anything Apple is interested okay, but in. Then, but then why doesn't net? <laughs> well, I guess Netflix is basically in crazy debt, but don't you feel like Netflix would be a really interesting like we own the mo- the we are movies. It's part of our brand. Like it would be cool if Netflix defined its brand beyond just we have a bunch of. Stuff. I mean, the word net is literally is. in their name, though. Yeah, yeah, that's literally. Yeah. But then I Amazon was like known it's... for like, but I'm sorry, Kelly. Just but but the that's true. But then the thing with Amazon to me that's amazing is they started opening bookstores because they were born to destroy the bookstore. Like no, but he became order. the very thing you swore to destroy. No, but that's what's different about Bezos, right? Amazon very deliberately didn't include books in their name and actually considered several products at launch and chose books because they did an analysis and they were like, oh, books make sense on the internet. Having a huge inter- inventory somewhere remote, giving people a lot of choices and it's a small thing that's easy to ship. It was a strategic decision to start with books and they deliberately mm. chose the name Amazon because it had no known association with products. They didn't want to ever have that situation that Netflix now Netflix. has where the yeah. word net is in it. Internet movies. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Cheap so is, movies is what it feels like. But then again, wow, you know, this is a genius. Yeah. There's so much in naming that becomes weird. Like, you know, we call them movies because of the moving picture show. I mean, that's ridiculous. Like, <laughs> I feel like you can, I feel like you can go way beyond, but I, I, I take your point, but I do think, I still think Netflix, if they didn't have weird credit stuff going on, like aren't they super in debt? It would be a great thing for Netflix to do because they could be like, hey, we've got Martin Scorsese. We've got theaters. We are art. We are movies. We are movies. You love movies. But like, I feel like it's not necessarily... I, I do want to go back to George's idea that this is like potentially a dying model. And not that it's already dead, but just that like we saw that movie theaters had to be bailed out in the pandemic and that AMC had to like raise a bunch of capital to to move their business forward here. And I mean, if any of these tech companies were to buy out theaters, they would have to sort of like do do a lot of rethinking about what the future of them would look like. They're only they have learned that so much content people are willing to watch at home. And that people only really go to the movie theaters for maybe you know a handful of movies that that make sense to watch in theaters. Otherwise, for the most part, people don't need to go out. It's a really. I think you're making a good point. I think it's interesting, and I want to something Charles started with that I want to go back to and ask both of your takes on. Like, in some ways, does because you just raised a, a point, Kat, that AMC was bailed out. That AMC is was sort of bailed out and is now sort of like leveraging its having it's like over leveraging itself to sweep up more independent or more independent movie theaters. It all kind of feels like the way our our country works in general where do you guys remember like the auto bailouts and stuff like yeah. when there's certain certain businesses 
Is this kind of what you were referring to at the beginning, Charles, which this like, it's, it's almost by design where it's like, well, that one's really big. So even though it's not necessarily efficient, even though it's not necessarily worth saving, objectively speaking, compared to Arclight, which theoretically was so well run and like, we should save Arclight, right? Like, I, I feel like maybe what you were saying was we should have a system that's designed to save an Arclight, not a system that's designed to keep an AMC alive so it can eat an Arclight's corpse. Right. I mean, you got a little yeah, visually graphic there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like it, it, I, systems always dictate everything and the way we design systems dictate things. And like, yeah, right now we have created perverse incentives where we have basically said as a company, investors are going to be more interested in you, the bigger you are. And when there are crises, you are going to be more likely to get the help you need to survive the bigger you are. And so, yeah, totally. It ends up in this situation. I mean, clearly you and I both have a deep emotional investment in Arclight. And so this yeah. is having like emotional implications for me when I'm like, am I going to have to start using the AMC ticketing app to go to Arclight? That's going to be such a, you know. Um, <laughs> and, but like, I don't think bailouts necessarily mean a company is not a strong company. You know, like GM came back really strong from the bailouts yes. in 2008. Yes. I think airlines don't deserve the bailouts they get because they keep doing all these massive stock buybacks in between bailouts. And I'm like, well, you don't, you shouldn't be allowed to like do a stock buyback for a decade after a bailout or something. Also, could they just like try to provide us with a better service since we're bailing them out constantly? You see, I'm on the weird other end of the spectrum here. I am still so amazed. I mean, I grew up in like a 30,000 person town in the middle of nowhere. Like we were four hours from an airport. So there is still a part of me that after all of these years of like flying all over the world, that still gets a window seat. And when we take off, it's still a little thrilled that like, I just find air travel so magical that like, yes, the food is shit, but like, I got to, I got to agree and disagree though, just real quick, because like, I get it. Like I sort of find air travel magical too, but I grew up next to LAX. So my opinion on how it's done is definitely different. it's like it's like it's not even just the food it's like everything about flying on united or american airlines is just such a horrible experience it's dehumanizing Um, it's awful and like if you've ever flown you know if you've ever been able to fly like i flew i flew air france they gave me brie in my lunchbox i was like this is amazing they they do it closer to what i think that golden age of travel feels like it where it was like this is a treat oh yeah or flying flying in the middle east flying on garuda flying on like i haven't done emirates but i've done other airlines in the middle east and you're like oh these are like this is what it's like to like actually at garuda southeast asia not middle east but i flew it weirdly into dubai and it's like oh this is like yeah we could be doing so much better it is it would be yes Speaking of doing anyway, better, wow. we got to <laughs> move on. See let's now. move on to our next subject. So, our next subject is talking about how do you find clients, and how do you ask for raises with clients and customers and bosses that you already have. Kath, do you that want to expand is, on that? That's a segue. That is a segue. Of I am well done. I'm Mister Segway. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, part of this is just like, I'm, I work a full-time job at an ad agency. So I'm also thinking from like these, these topics I I think about all the time, but yeah, I think for, 
for people who run their own production company or are like freelancing as director shooter or, you know, are in that space where you're needing to hustle to find your money, how do you build out a client base and how, you know, best practices for maintaining a client base too? I think that's something that would be great to talk about. And then the raises is like a separate question, but that's, that's where I'd like to start. Charles, this is like, this is all you, man. Yeah. This is like such my deep wheelhouse. All right. So I'm going to start with how I got like arguably my first client, not really my first client, but the first client that makes a good story, which is when I was in high school, I had a buddy, Dave, and he met a girl at a music festival and he really wanted to like follow up and see her again. So he talked me into like driving to Ohio for the weekend so he could hang out with her. And we hung out with her all night and she had a friend from her dorm and we went to a diner and hung out all night as my buddy Dave flirted with this girl from music festival. 15 years later, ran into that guy (laughs) from Ohio in LA and he became my first client, like the guy at the diner. So one argument is when your friend meets some, falls in love with someone at a music festival and is like, let's go to Ohio. Like that's one way to go get clients. But the point of that anecdote is that like your first clients and your beginning clients will start generally with a whole series of weird coincidences and accidents. And what turns them into clients is following up, right? I bumped into that guy 10 years later. We talked about what work we were working on. He had a job opportunity. He's, you know, we'd, we'd started to build a business in post-production. We were looking to do production. He sent it over to us as like, a, oh, you guys are starting to do this. And so it was like, a, and we'd run into each other a couple other times over the years. So like most of your clients will start in small ways, right? It is very rare that your first client is a Fortune 500 company. And you start with these smaller clients and you sort of follow up with them in a gentle, regular way until it turns into work. So, you know, I used to, like, I used to take my business cards everywhere. I I will go back to doing that when the world is done. I, the other day I was um, uh, in my storage unit where I keep all my film gear and the person who has a storage unit next to me saw my film gear and started asking me questions and, and she just started a, she's just started a business and they have a storefront and they might need advertising. And I was like, Oh, I don't really do that, but I know people who do. And like, you know, we did cards and I'm going to recommend people that do those kind of like ad spots and stuff. And like that kind of stuff is what leads to a lot of clients. Now, the other half of that story is that once we booked that first client, it was our first book trailer client. When we booked trailers had a brief moment where they were a thing. And so that's where book trailers for us, you know, when we had a company doing a lot of book trailers came from, we did the first one. It was very successful. A couple articles got written about it because it had like huge traction. And I was like, okay, so we've done a book trailer and it was a hit. So I got, I sat down and I cold emailed every single publishing company that had a marketing department where I could find their contact on the internet. And I sent like 200 emails and I got like four back. And so that's the other half of finding clients is you can cold email. Now it is always better and easier to cold email when there is a ticking clock or something on it. When you can say, oh, hey, we just did this book trailer for this client and it's getting heat and you probably have heard of it. And I'm sure it was in your social media feed or whatever. It's always easier if you just, you know, the day after the music video you did for free for your friend blew up and got to a certain number of hits in a day, that is the day to send out cold emails to a bunch of music video commissioners, or that is the day. It is always easier when you can create that, like, this is a moment in time I'm using to contact you thing rather than a general broad-based thing. But then, you know, some people do their general broad-based thing. I mean, Hannah Lux Davis, who's like huge in music videos, tells a lot of stories about like being unabashed about, but she was like, 
I would decide there's a, there's a band I wanted to do a video for, and I would get backstage passes to the concert and I would go to the concert and I would talk to them for as long as I could backstage about how I wanted to make a video for them. And if I, and if backstage passes weren't available for the concert, I would sneak backstage. And like, that was her thing. And I think it went on for a long time, repeatedly like targeting music video clients, trying to build that up. The other biggest thing in terms of clients is just working in the space as much as you can and working for people. Cause you know, like for instance, like the perfect story is like the lady who saw my film equipment in my cage and like, you know, was like talking to me about stuff. Like I'm not really in a place where I, you know, for the right budget. And if their creative was cool, I could see doing a storefront ad. It's not really my speed, but if we wanted to do something funny, maybe, but I know lots of people and there's lots of people working with me and there's always people on my radar. I'm trying to pass things to. So as soon as she was like, oh, I want to do a store for an ad for like my place. Like we need video content. It'd be cool. I'm opening the store that does X. There were like six people that I work with all the time that I thought of recommending to her. So, you know, if you're working with people, you're at an ad agency, if you're freelancing with other people, there will be stuff that is too small for them that they will end up sending your way because that's just sort of the inevitability as you slowly get better at things. You know, when you're first starting out doing a five or $10,000 spot seems exciting. Once you've done 20 of them and you realize how hard they are, they just seem exhausting. And then a little one comes in and you send it to the people you're working with. So those are the big ways I think about in terms of like developing new clients. And then in terms of keeping them, I mean, there's all of the classic, you know, client services is a thing for a reason. I don't know what client services has been like during COVID, but like anytime you hear they are in town, you do everything you possibly can to make sure that you are taking them out to do something fun. So, you know, like when I would hear about a client in town, like my go-tos were always motorcycles and ping pong because I'm not a big drinker. If you are a big drinker, just asking the client out for drinks is like totally a normal part of business. As someone who doesn't really drink much, I'm always like, hey, we can go play ping pong. We can go ride motorcycles. There were a couple other things that like, as I would get to know clients and like, you know, you just take people out and have as much fun as you possibly can. And it really, uh, like that works. And then just staying in gentle social media touch, like not too aggressive, but just sort of a gentle, like I'm still working on this. I'm doing this thing. Oh, check out this thing. I still did that kind of stuff is, is a good sort of habit. I mean, there was a time in my life where the production company was busy, where I was probably out with clients once a week. That is no longer what my life looks like, but that is definitely like a thing that people do. Man, you should teach a master class. <laughs> Keeping clients and maintaining those relationships. Without developing a, a drug addiction. <laughs> it definitely has a lot to do with uh, your social abilities too and, mm. and honing those. I think that as far as the question of like asking for raises, I think that there's probably that's probably one of those things where it's really circumstantially specific industry specific and business specific like who are you talking to what's the state of the business what's the relationship with the manager or managers what's the status of the company you know that my i think there's a lot of things that that go into how you approach something like that but i do think it's funny because earlier i was talking about I was making jokes about agents and managers sort of and their motivations. But I do think it's one of the things that's amazing about the concept of representation. It's not just 
for some of us, not pleasant to have to represent ourselves or fight that battle. Some people love doing it, but oftentimes those are the people who the employees hate too, <laughs> like, like, or the employers, because the people, like, it can cut both ways. Certainly, like, if you're someone who loves to get in there and negotiate on your behalf, you might also happen to be somebody that the people who make the decisions about paying get annoyed by easily because they do that all the time or they seem to enjoy it. I don't know. There's so many factors that go into that, X factors. But I feel that the nature of having somebody negotiate on one's behalf is so valuable. That shield, that go-between, that dynamic, I think there's real value to it because it creates, it, it allows the employer and the employee to maintain the professional dynamic where they're trying to just focus on doing the best work they can and not allow this question of one's value or trying to convince somebody of value and then being told, I don't know if I believe in that value like that, that can really get in the way of the relationship, I think. Mm. That's my personal opinion. Sometimes as a person who's been in charge of paying people and hiring them, and as a person who's been paid as an employee and an employer, I've felt like oftentimes the amount of money available is beyond anyone's control, but there ends up being a lot of emotional stuff that goes on about that reality, which is like, hey, I don't believe you that you wish you could pay me more. Yeah, well, I don't blame you that you don't believe me, Like, but I don't, I can't. Like, or conversely feeling like I really feel like I'm worth more and having an employer who's like, even if I do feel that way, which I won't betray right now, I can't afford to pay you more. <laughs> it's just like, mm. sometimes the things just are like that. And I think that it's, it's tricky. I don't know. Do you, do you, Charles, what do you think? And also Kath, what's your experience with it? Like, have you asked, have you had that experience before? What happened? Yeah, I have a few thoughts. I mean, again, like uh, the uh, the whole conversation around asking for raises could be a whole episode in itself because like you said, there's like so many different circumstances. I will say, and I think it's relevant for this podcast, like for entry-level film industry positions or like most below-the-line positions, it's it's pretty difficult. Like if you're not in a union, um, pretty difficult to like move the needle on how much you should be getting paid. Like I once tried to apply for a director's assistant position on a on a Hulu TV show. And they were like, okay, yeah, the position is, you know, pays this flat rate of something like 150 per day. And uh, I was like, you know, I really feel like based on my experience, I would love to be making this. And the reply that I got was an immediate like, yeah, no, it's just a flat 150 per day. Like we're yeah, not going to go over like, that. There's a thousand people just waiting for this job, you know? Yeah. Which really sucks. Yeah. You're for those kinds of jobs. <laughs> yeah. And so coming out of that freelance work and like getting used to, you know, for the jobs that I did, there was always basically like a set rate coming into this ad agency space and like a more corporate environment. The whole idea of like negotiating a salary was very new to me. <laughs> and I just like had no idea how to handle it in my, you know, when I first got hired. I had and the same like, exact experience when I worked at a I worked at a company. The first time I worked at a company that was a software company, right after yeah. I my first thing after having been like just a hashtag set life person forever mm-hmm. or or a creative mm-hmm. was just like I don't know how to do any of this stuff. But mm-hmm. um, I leaned on talking to other people I know who'd done it, 
And I don't think I did a particularly good job because I do also think, I want to get to, to Charles on this too. I think like with a lot of stuff, personal experience and reps, repetitions just makes you better at something. Like, so just keep doing it and then you learn. Mm. But I don't know. What are your experiences, Charles? So my experience comes from both sides of the table. Like I spent years running like a production company in Post House. And I remember so clearly being on the side of the table where like you're getting a budget in on a project. You have to, you have a certain amount of content you want to deliver. You, you never have enough money to do all of the ambitious things you want to do. And you are incredibly conscious of what everyone is willing to take. There were probably times where, yeah, no, there were definitely times where we were like, oh, well, you know, go, you know, we're generally maybe getting up around $800 a day for a lot of editors, but we still know editor X who would do it for 600 a day and they're almost as good and they do it for six. And maybe that's a place we can, you know, so like you're so conscious of what rate everyone has. And every time someone came, we never lost respect for anybody who negotiated for more money. We never respect, lost respect for anybody who was like, oh, hey, I see that like I'm getting better at this and I feel like it's time that I start billing more. Never lost any respect. But one thing that did happen is especially at the lower ranks of the jobs, like it's much easier once you're a DP, a director, an editor, a producer, where you're bringing real value to the table to push back and be like, I never go out for less than the grand a day. That's just what I do. Like, if you want me, you get me. It's much harder to push at the bottom of the call sheet. And the reason why is exactly what you said. Like, there's so many people competing for every job. And unfortunately, that ends up being a place where I think people look for savings in the budget, which is insane, right? Like, it's not the place you should be trying to save in the budget. But, you know, 150, 200 a day or 250 for commercials is like the PA assistant kind of rate. And if you get someone who, asks for more on that i think there's usually it's usually not the place where there's going to be much negotiation because as a producer doing that hulu show or doing whatever you know there's like 50 other amazing people that you can get that will come out at that rate the problem is is that rate didn't change for 20 years right that rate would have been 150 a day 20 years ago and what what 150 a day was 20 years ago was 150 a day and rent in LA is 600 a month. And so you're like, okay, we're paying you shitty, but like you're still eating. 150 in 2021 with LA rents and LA food costs is basically saying this job is only available to people whose parents are going to help them financially. And that's ridiculous. And that's really unfortunate. I mean, I, I would like to see more companies start to make commitments about what the bottom of their pay scale looks like because all of the negotiating power is when you are higher up mm-hmm. on the scale and mm-hmm. the bot, like, there needs to be a lower limit on, you know, nobody on set is going to make less than X because it's mm-hmm. just not a living wage. And expect I mean, there should either- be an assistance union. There's been a lot about that. But there yeah. Really mm-hmm. Oh, and we were going to uh, end up talking about the producers union at some point. We'll talk about the producers union that's getting launched next week because that was actually something. I wanted that- to, yeah, I wanted to add something though quickly that I just realized about negotiating rates because I hadn't thought of it in my first blur, but as you were talking about it, Charles and Kath, I realized something that I just think everyone should remember. And there's a, there's a trick to it, I think. The best thing to do in, on either side of the table is to be willing and comfortable not coming to terms. Because if you need it and you're not comfortable with that outcome, 
you're going to have to compromise. But if you can own and love, I always think about it like buying a car. If you can own and love the idea that you're just going to walk out of there, when you buy a car, oftentimes you have to be like, okay, later and leave. And you have to really like love the idea that you're going to leave and not leave with the car and that they're going to, they're maybe even not going to care. But if you can't get comfortable with that, you're never going to really, I don't want to say win the negotiation, but you're, you're probably, if, if that's not a reality for you, if, if the job is life, if the job must continue, then you really don't have a lot of negotiating power, right? But if you're like Charles mentions that, like that DP, for example, who's like, this is what it is. You get me or you don't. That DP comes with the confidence of knowing I don't need this job. They've decided at some point, like, if I don't get this job, I'm okay. And if but you have that in your back pocket, a lot of times you don't, right? But if I mean, you it's do, almost impossible when you're new because every penny, right, exactly. there yeah. were so many months in my first two or three years in LA where I sp- specifically remember the job I booked where I was like, oh, great, that's rent. Like sometimes mm-hmm. it was like on the 15th of the month, but I remember one year that it was the 26th of the month. And I was like, I hope these motherfuckers pay on set. And they did. Mm-hmm. And that was rent. And like yeah. that was so many, so many times. Where I was like, oh, I'm so glad that these are Benjamins in an envelope I, that I can just take to the bank and pay rent tomorrow. And like that, it really does limit your ability to negotiate when you're like, I yeah. really do need this. Which is why the set life thing makes it very hard to have negotiating power, especially at the bottom of the call sheet. But why when you get into the corporate thing, this is like so dad-like, but I feel like it's really a smart idea to start saving as soon as you're earning anything. So then main, not just because like all the millions of reasons you might want to save, but also because then when it's time, you can theoretically walk away and look at what, you know, it's not like, look at, at what you have and be like, how many months can I go? And, you know, just remember like, nobody's your, really your friend. (laughs) Like, I mean, nobody's really your friend out there in that, in that dynamic. Like, Everybody's got to look out for themselves first. That's just the reality of these dynamics. Mm. Yeah. It's also one of those things of like, when in a corporate setting asking for a raise, remember that it is expected. Like literally at least once a year, they expect to give you a raise in a corporate environment. That is like the deal. If you've gone a Mm -hmm. couple of years in a corporate environment and not gotten a raise, they're taking advantage of you. It might not be a huge increase. It might just be cost of living. But every corporation budgets that they will be giving people raises every year. And so like walk in there on a regular basis, knowing that that is expected. Yeah. I think something that I'd love to talk about, like on a future episode too, which feels like a nebulous topic, but is totally related to what we're discussing is like how to know your value and how to know what, what your skill set is worth who's the DP who can be like, I'm a thousand dollars a day and that's it. Like, what does it take to get there? One of the things that we were talking about at work recently was we posted some job listings and we, in the job listing, we said, you know, in your application, let us know what your salary expectation is. That is now illegal in California, right? So that's what we were talking about. Someone (laughs) pointed out like, look, you cannot in the state of California, ask people what their salary history is. And so therefore asking what their salary expectation is, even though it's a different question, is still kind of the same thing. 
So someone pointed that out to us and we were like, cool, we're going to get rid of that line. So sorry. But it is the kind of thing that like, you know, someone in my company was like expecting that people would do that. And so as an applicant, you're sitting there like, well, what the hell should I say? I love the question of what's knowing your worth. And I'll just add people are going to, some people, a lot of people are going to try God, I just realized that saying some people, a lot of people, I feel like our former president, that was like a f- refrain. <laughs> it's terrible. They're going to tr- they, try to tell you that your skills aren't valuable. That's a common thing you'll hear like that the, in sneaky ways that it's like, well, you can get that a lot of places, right? You'll hear that like, and that, it, hey, it may be true, but it's something that you you have to really know and learn about what the value is of what you can do compared to others. No, other people probably can't tell you as well as you can understand it yourself. What do you think about that, Charles? I'm really curious. I mean, for me, I think that first off, I understand why HR departments want to put that line in because HR, like everybody wants to make their life as easy as possible, which is, okay, I'll see what all the salary ranges are. And then every HR department, when you get a job approved, you have a budget. You're like, oh, I can pay 100 to 110. So I'm going to rule out everybody who's expecting 170. And I'm going to rule out everybody that's expecting 70. And anybody who guessed the right number on their expectation are going to be the resumes I take seriously and spend time reading because it's going to make HR's job easier. F- and it's so backwards. It's fucking it's like, stupid. Because yeah. like, I understand you want to make your job easier, HR, but like it shouldn't be the price is right. Yeah, that's <laughs> the price is right. And that's what it becomes. It becomes like who is good at guessing the number range you've already approved for this job. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, they don't want to advertise that approved range number because like I guess they're not throwing out all of the 70s. Anybody who's applying for the job and who's putting like, like let's say they're approved for 100 to 110 and someone puts in a great resume and they're only expecting 90, well, they're going to be considered, right? They're only going to throw out the people expecting 40 because those people clearly don't have an estimate of what's going on. So it's a, it's a way to save money, right? It's a way if we put 100 to 110, everyone's going to expect an offer of at least 100. Whereas if we don't publish it, then it, it means we don't have to read as many resumes and it means we don't have to, I think it should be the law that you have to list your salary expectation. Like you don't post a job ad if you haven't done internal math on what kind of numbers you expect to offer the person. Like mm. there's no business that does that. There's no corporate that does that. So you should just, I work for the city of New York, uh, the, uh, the city university of New York and every job ad has a salary range and God bless them because that is mm-hmm. like, like the whole, like salary commensurate with experience thing is just a way of like, it repeats all sorts of insane biases. It repeats all sorts of like weird systemic issues. And you're like, just put up the number in terms of knowing what you are worth. It's complicated because like, you know, uh, they did that insurance thing where they were like, what's the value of a human life? And they ask a bunch of undergraduates that and human undergrads are always like 500,000, 10, you know, a million or whatever. And like insurance companies actually say the value of human life is something like $11 million (laughs) because we're actually like, we help so many other people and we fill so many other lives with joy and we support our kids and all of that stuff. So like, there's that, that like, we're all worth more than we think we are. Insurance companies think we are worth more than we think we are. But it's also about like, The thing I constantly remind everybody I know who's going through one of these negotiations is that these people are making money off you, right? Like that is the deal. So whatever they are paying you, it is worth it to them because they're making money off of you. They would not pay you 
unless you're working for a charity, unless they're making money off you. So like if you're a freelancer in the advertising agency, I mean, this isn't as, as what it used to be, but like markup used to by default be 2x, which means if you were, you know, editing for an agency for a grand a day, the client was getting billed three grand a day for that. And the agency, you know, was keeping two grand. So like you should not feel bad pushing your grand a day up to 1200 a day because they're just going to 2x that onto the client <laughs> and Coca-Cola is now going to be paying 3600 a day. Everybody wins. So like people are making money off you. That's why they're willing to pay you to do the things. So I, I try not to think about it in terms of self-worth because like my self-worth is like the smile on my daughter's face when I pick her up and put her on my shoulders. But like I think about in negotiations, like how much money are you making off of me? And am I helping you make more money off of me? That is great. Yeah, that's really good. That's uh, that. That's a good reminder. Sometimes I think we can get confused. I've been confused before about like, well, how much more could you be making? Or, you know, those kinds of like, like thinking of contextualizing it a little bit beyond what really makes sense, which is just, yeah, companies make money off your labor, you know, that you're, you're entitled to a pretty decent chunk of that in theory. Mm. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think half, I think you're entitled to half of that. So the default for film seems to be about a third, which like, I don't think is morally reprehensible. I mean, good for you ad agency. If you're able to mark up people three times and get it out of your client, good for you. The agency business is also hard. I'm not judging anyone in this scenario. I'm just saying that's sort of the habit for a lot of these things. So go out there, get paid. Hashtag get paid. <laughs> so in tech news this week, Deity has launched the BPTRX, which is not my favorite name of a thing because it's a <laughs> lot of letters, but I like the thing itself a lot. And I actually think that eventually once you understand the letters, You'll you'll like the name better. I've I've liked it better more. So let's let's first talk about what it does and why TRX is the important part of the name. So you know in in filmmaking, there's a lot of wireless units we have, right? You'll have like a Teradec or a Hollyland like wireless video unit, and you'll have a transmitter on the camera, a TX for transmitter, and a receiver, an RX on your monitor, and that's how you're getting like wireless video. And in sound, we have the same thing: transmitters, which will be like attached to a lavalier on someone's chest and then a receiver on your mixer, those kind of things, very common. Transmitters and receivers, super normal things. And we abbreviate them TX and RX. This thing is cool because it's a TRX, which means it's both a transmitter and a receiver. And on top of that, it also has built-in local recording. So let's say you're going out and, and on top of all that, it also does time code. So I'm going to bring up an example that is super common, which is you're doing a multi-camera doc shoot. This happens all the time. I did I did it a whole bunch this spring. I don't think I shot a single camera thing all th- spring. Everything I did this spring was at least two, if not three cameras. So you want sound going to all three cameras locally if you can get it. Maybe you have like two or three actors in front of the screen and you want them individually mic'd. Maybe you have a mixer and you want to be able to sync it all in post. So this little box makes it way easier to do it with less devices. So for instance, if you want all of the cameras sunk together, so that you don't have to worry about using the clapper or waveform or anything to sync the shots together and post you. The time code just automatically syncs it like at one clink syncs, syncs your three shots together. You can use these little BPTRX boxes to put the exact same time code in all three cameras. 
So they just automatically sync in post. In fact, with Resolve now, they make what's called a sync bin, where if you just put clips with matching time code in the same bin, they just automatically sync. You don't have to That's do anything cool. else. Oh, it's so cool. It's so like, when, when you think about the work we used to have to do if you did like a concert film in 2008, and you think about the work you have to do now, if you do like a three camera doc interview or a three camera, like the, uh, three of the weekend things I did were food shoots. And it's like, you know, it's like a chef and two hosts talking about what they're cooking and whatever. And it's like the work we used to have to do to make those. Oh, I, I mean, I don't want to like, I used to do little news things. I used to do two camera setups by myself that I would edit later. And I would sometimes try to sync by eye. And I used oh. to have dreams when I was cutting that stuff. I used to have, Bad, like nightmares where I couldn't, where I was watching something and the world was suddenly starting to be out of sync sound wise. And oh, I'd start oh. to try to figure out how far out it would be. And that, I mean, I had that experience. The idea that it's that easy to automatically have it all synced. Yeah. I I mean, we're, I'm, we're old enough to come from, I mean, in film school, I re- remember actually syncing mag tape. Sound. Oh yeah. But anyway. <laughs> no, I was, I was just thinking about, like, I was looking at these and I was thinking about the first project to use wireless lobs on in 1999. And I was like, oh yeah. And we were recording to a quarter inch Nagra. My God. Yeah, Nagra, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what's great is, so, you know, time code things exist. There's the great tentacle time code things, which are wonderful. And I highly recommend when you have devices like that, that's another thing you're adding to your setup. What's fun about this is this little box does time code and you can plug a lavalier into it. And it'll wirelessly transmit that lavalier signal back to a, another receiver so that you can use it in your mixer. or And it'll record locally. So if there's any like digital dropouts, because wireless, you can get digital dropouts, you have a, a locally recorded backup copy, you have your transmitted to the mix down in your mixer, and you have time code syncing all your cameras and your mixer together all in one little unit. And, you know, it used to be really normal that having like three or four different things on your camera, like two wireless receivers and one wireless transmitter and like, and a time code box and all that uh, was normal. But now we're getting to really small camera packages where we can, you know, the dream is a smaller and smaller number of things that we mount on our camera to do the job. And all of a sudden with this guy, you're like, okay, I have one of these on each of my cameras, one of these on my, like a base station on my mixer. And it's doing so many different jobs that used to be different products you can also also because it's a receiver or a transmitter and there's a little headphone amp in there you can use it as a director's monitor so you have one of these mounted to your mixer and then you give a director one of these and a set of headphones and they can stick it in their pocket and use it as like a comm to listen to what the mix is going on so it's one of those like we're entering a real phase of things that just do a bunch of different things easily so yeah, I just wanted to cover it this week on the podcast because it's super cool. And Deity, if you guys don't know Deity, they make some very reasonably priced. I don't like saying cheap because it's not cheap. It's like well-built and it's metal and it's solid, but they make some affordable units. So like a single BPTRX is like 250 bucks. There are kits with like multiple configurations of them for like under a grand. It's sort of amazing. Like if you were doing, for the sheer time alone of having time code sync for a three camera shoot, this will make your life so much easier. So something to think about. And then our Ask No Film School this week is from Gonzaga GB. Hmm. Gonzaga was a high school near where I grew up, so it's a funny thing to hear. Is there any alternative to Kino? Now that Kino is dead, does anyone recommend support alternatives to Kino? And I thought this was a great question because Kino is not dead. And I wanted to, uh, <laughs> And I wanted to use this as a platform to talk about transition places in software. And also because, I mean, what's the point of being in a film school if we 
we can get like literally I emailed Kino and they emailed me back like 30 minutes later, which they're probably not able to do with every one of their customers. But when they know you're press, they respond to your emails faster. And I was like, oh, we're press. What's the point of being press if not getting qu- quick responses? So I emailed the head of Less Pain Software. Less Pain makes Kino within 30 minutes at like four in the morning. He responded. He was like, we're not dead. Awesome. Yeah, they're not dead. So Kino, if you don't know it, is a footage organization software. It is sort of somewhere in between, like, you know, there's like the downset downloading solutions like Shotput and um, Silverstack, and there's a few others. And then there's the like truly sophisticated media architecture solutions. It's sort of in the middle, but it's really designed for like very quick preview and organization of a vast amount of footage before you move into the editor. And it hmm. sort of fills an interesting niche. I didn't think that I was going to use it. And then I wrote a review of it and I was like, oh no, actually this is like a useful step. Like, especially when you're working on like a big doc project or when you have assets, you might be reusing a lot from project to project where you're like, oh, you know, everyone who cuts something for this corporate client is going to want all of this source media of all the B-roll shots of the corporate campus. Like it's a really good place to be like, oh, well, I'll organize it in Kino. And then it's really easy to port that over to a variety of projects. So it's a smart little tool, especially popular for people shooting corporate. Less Pain got bought by Signiant. Signiant's another software company. And as often happens during corporate integrations, support ticket response times and release updates have slowed down on Kino. However, according to the like within 20 minutes email response we got from Kino, not, not dead, alive. They're going to continue to support. It's going to keep expanding and growing. It will probably be slower for a while as the less pain team gets to know the Signiant team, integrates better with Signiant products, and finds the ways in which those benefits will happen. But as of right now, the plan is to continue to up support Kino. In addition, like that's good news because the less pain team seem like nice people. It's also good news because I don't actually have a good competitor to Kino at its price point. There's like bigger corporate solution tools for organizing your footage that get pricey. But like at for what Kino does, there's not really a competitor that comes to mind for me. So it should hopefully be good news that Kino is going to continue to exist and that we got to use the fact that we are pressed to get a quick answer to a question. Yeah, that's really cool. I like that you could answer it for them on their behalf so rapidly. <laughs> it's like, and actually get in touch with them and they'd respond quickly and it still exists. And that's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, obviously a company should also respond to its customers' emails as quickly as it can. But in reality, that is often not as doable as we might want it to be, depending upon how many people there are. So uh, how many customers have how many questions? All right. So that is the No Film School podcast for this week. As always, you can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Charles Hain. I'm going to actually take Twitter and Instagram more seriously this summer. Engage with me there. Awesome. I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can read all about the stories we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. I really want to let everybody know, you probably heard the ad on the podcast already, to check out the five-day deal. It is going on. You can find it on the website, No Film School. You can find it in your inbox if you subscribe to our newsletter. And if you don't, you certainly should. You can find it at our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter. And it's great. There is a ton of stuff available. There are multiple bundles you can buy. It's filmmaking tools, gear, courses. It's not put together by us. It's an independent thing. Some of the money goes to charity, which is also great. 
but there is just a ton of stuff. Like if you want to edit, if you want to color, if you want gear, if you want to learn how to do something and take a course, this is a discount on all sorts of things bundled together for filmmakers. That's the main thing. So it's really a unique opportunity. It's only five days. It's running from June 3rd to June 8th. Be sure to check it out. 